Good morning. This is weird to be back with you guys two weeks in a row. If you weren't here last week, I was here last week. So I'm getting to be old news, I guess. Uh, Jordan, thank you for your kind words and encouragement. Thank you as well for just the way you are stepping into this season and serving. I know you gave me and Pete some extra time to get with you this week and, and walk with you a little bit and try to serve your church more effectively. Uh, thanks to the guys on the advisory team who have been given hours. There's one walking right, out right now. You don't need to leave just because you've heard me all week long already. Um, they're probably sick of listening to me talk to them. Uh, but grateful, grateful to be here this morning with you guys. Uh, I don't want to go back through deep history, but you know, I think history matters a little bit. And so I, I do just, you know, this is a unique season for where you guys are as a church and what you're walking through. And it's, it's just a joy for me to have history with so many of, of you who are here. And so my wife and I, as a matter of fact, my wife is with me, Gina. Wave to folks who don't know you. Um, we have, have known some of the folks in your church uh, since before we were married. And we've been married 30 years this year. So we go back a little ways with, with some people here, including Jeff and Kathy, before we were married and before they were married. And um, I'm grateful for getting to experience the kingdom of God over a long period of time. And, and I highlight that because this is a moment in our, in our culture, and this is a moment for you as a church, where you know, you're walking through a season where, you know, if you were with us last week, you know, Jeff shared just some struggles that he's been going through over, over this past months, and then even extended beyond that, just to, you know, personally wrestling through some, some thoughts and some challenges that he's experienced as a pastor. And, you know, as we've interacted with that and he has made himself available and he's come forward and said, hey, I, I, you know, I need some help. Um, and so he's walked with myself and Pete Shepherdstein, who serve you guys as provisional elders. He's walked with a local leadership uh, team. He's walking with guys in Sovereign Grace that we're reaching out to. Uh, relationship matters in that moment. Because you know, I don't need to cover much ground with Jeff. I've known Jeff since he's about nine years old, and and he doesn't have to cover much ground with me. He's not trying to figure out where's this guy coming from and what's his angle and what's he trying to work here. Um, that's a benefit. You may not know that, but that's a, a real benefit when you walk in the kingdom of God. How many of you guys recognize you live in the most suspicious age in the history of humanity? Right? If anybody's got an ounce of authority from the person who seats you at the restaurant on down, we suspect they're up to something. And I'm just grateful that's not what's taking place here. I hope it's not what's taking place for you as you walk through a process uh, with us together. I will encourage you, if you weren't here last week and you're part of the church, you can get access to last week's service and watch it. I think it's most important that you hear from Jeff himself in terms of just how he's walking things out and what he's experiencing and what he shared with the church last week. Just to give you an, an update, our, our goal in this is to create the next two or three months, uh, create a season where, where Jeff can, can get some weight of responsibilities off of his plate and can give some attention just to, to encountering the Lord and just being with the Lord, to listen and for the Lord to to reveal some things about himself, reveal some things for Jeff about where he's been and things he's struggled with, and, and to find some strength and grace from God, and, and at the same time to walk with some others in a way that allows us to kind of peek in uh, 
interact with some things that we might see as we do that. So I just want you guys to be aware. This is kind of where the process is going to be over the next couple of months or so. Um, Jeff would be having regular meetings with me, uh, with Pete Shepherdstein as well. And again, we serve provisionally for you guys as elders in your in your local church. Um, he would be having regular meetings with another pastor who does pastoral counseling uh, in Sovereign Grace. He's got access to meeting with a personal counselor uh, as well. Part of this process will be overseen by a member of the Sovereign Grace leadership team who gives oversight to me as a, a regional leader, one of the functions I have within Sovereign Grace. So there's a handful of folks involved. And, and the reason why is because there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And kind of what you're going to hear from me today a little bit in, in the message is we find ourselves in moments like this. And I'm just, I'm going to blend this message in for every married couple and every person walking with another human being in a relationship. Uh, there's a lot that you're going to do in your life that doesn't have a specific Bible verse to tell you exactly what to do in that moment. And you know, God designed his word that way. God didn't design a book for us where he came along and said, you know what, you don't need me, you just need a book. Here's a book, go read the book and... See you when I come to pick you up. Uh, no, the book points us to the living God and to the Holy Spirit who leads us into truth. So a book without the Holy Spirit is a book you can't go anywhere with because this is spiritually revealed stuff and the Holy Spirit's got to open our hearts to it and reveal it to us. So uh, God has things that he wants to do right now that he intentionally didn't put on a Bible page. And that may sound weird as somebody who really believes strongly in preaching the Bible, but we're going to need to be led by God in this moment as a church. And Jeff's going to need to be led by God as well. So what I intend to do today is, is just to unpack for you some, some truths that need to travel with us in this moment. Uh, let me give you one more thing. I, I wanted you guys to have access to myself and Pete Shefferstein. Uh, if, if this moment, this season uh, that you're walking through as a church has generated some questions for you that you just feel like I just need to talk to somebody uh, about some questions that I have about what's going on or what I don't know, or um, you got that email address slide for myself and Pete Shefferstein, that'd be the quickest way to get something going would be just to send us an email saying, hey, I'd love to connect with you. I've got a couple of questions. This is who I am. Uh, and then Peter and myself will get back with you. And, and if we need to come over here and maybe schedule a meeting, if there's a few of you guys that would like that. Maybe we could pick a day and just meet with a few of you uh, in that setting. But we want you to have access to us, and we want you to be able to ask anything you feel like you want to ask uh, in this season. All right. Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn to First Peter. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 4 and then into chapter 5 as well. All right, here's my title this morning. Not surprised, but entrusting our souls. And that's going to come from this passage we're about to read. First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is 
revealed. Oh, there's so much here. I'm not going to make some points here, but I just can't pass this up. How many of you guys have noticed that the Bible often is pointing you to something that's not yet available? Right? Did you hear it in that verse? There is a rejoicing and there is a gladness when his glory is revealed. And so, I mean, I grew up in America, so I don't, I don't like to wait for anything. And some of these verses trouble me because, I mean, I can't have access to that right now. Not exactly. Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let's pray just for a moment. Lord, we just read on the pages of your word and we're given an awareness that there would be times of testing and fiery trials. And then you give us some instruction and you build it out a good bit for us today. So Lord, we we have need of hearing. What do we do when we encounter these fiery trials? Lord, we are to entrust ourselves to a faithful creator. Lord, help us do that this morning. Lord, even as we're here this morning with our own personal troubles, with things that we're concerned about, things that we're weighed down by, Lord, there's, there's an act of entrusting. Lord, don't let any of us miss out on the opportunity to take what's in us that troubles us and to entrust our souls to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Beloved, do not be surprised. Why is it that we are always surprised? Why is it when life gets hard and we find something that was supposed to be good has become really, really challenging, we are like shocked. We want to take God to court. We want a refund. We think God's broken down somewhere. We think the people involved, because there's always people involved. And there are usually people involved when there's fiery trials. I wish my fiery trials were just the fact that my car won't start. It's usually the people in my life that provide the fiery trials. So why are, why are we surprised? I don't want to ask you for a show of hands, but in the last year, have you been surprised? When the Bible turns right around and says, okay, there's people sitting around you. There's people who drove in the car here with you. At some point, they're going to be involved in a fiery trial, and they're going to be part of your life. And the Bible turns around and says, okay, don't be surprised. Not only that, and this is what First Peter is so, so good at, it's going to explain some of the purposes in these fiery trials. Right, so I know we have a tendency to get in fiery trials and we have a big question that we ask. And it's a good question. It's the question, why? Do you ask God why? And why? Why is this going on? Why did this come? Why is it taking so long? Why this and not that? And there's a lot about the why question that you and I won't get an answer for. But there are some answers to the why question. And we find it here. We find the Bible actually goes out of its way to explain the things that generate the why questions, the circumstances and the fiery trials and the suffering and the difficulty. God actually does step into that and offer us some explanation. I'll pick up on a thought from Paul Tripp. I read a little bit of a thought from him last week. In his book, Lost in the Middle, he he highlights something that by the time you get to midlife, you should be aware of this. He says, life in this fallen world is hard. The world is a broken place. We all will face the unexpected. 
Being a believer does not exempt you from moments of significant darkness. There will be times when it seems impossible to figure out what God is doing. There will be times when it seems as if your cries are going unheard and your prayers unanswered. There will be moments when it seems like you are utterly alone and that no one could possibly understand what you are going through. This psalm, he's referring to Psalm 88, confronts us with a powerful reality. Being in a covenantal relationship with the Lord does not mean that I will escape the difficulties of life in a fallen world. Can I just tell you that quote, and matter of fact, I provide notes for multiple reasons, the same way you guys do, so that that this is not the only time you're meeting with God over this word. And can I just prepare you? I always share way too much. um, But the reality is, if I I spoke for an hour, if I spoke for 15 minutes, there's only about three or four minutes worth of stuff you're going to walk away with. You just need to figure out what three or four minutes it is. So if it's on the front end, circle it in your notes, go back, sit with God and say, God, that leapt out at me. Talk to me about that further. So that's why you got notes, so you can go back and visit this with God. But there's a reality in our world. And, and quite honestly, America makes this really hard to believe. And if you've been raised or anything that sounded like the prosperity gospel, it's even harder to believe. Because the prosperity gospel is a selective approach to picking up promises out of the Bible and ignoring other pieces of the Bible. And when it, when it picks up the things that say, look at this good, look at this good, look at this good, you can have this, you can have this, just have faith, stop sinning, live righteously, God will bless you. When it picks up only those pieces and highlights it, it installs an expectation that if, if I'm a Christian and I really walk with God, everything's going to be good. Stuff won't break. Everything will be fine. So what does that do for you when stuff isn't going right? It turns you upside down. Matter of fact, I'm warning you, and part of the, in saying this to you as a church, when you come across somebody else's trouble, if there's too much of the prosperity gospel in you, and, and you're in America, so it's, it is in you. It's in all of every one of us. You're going to begin to try and figure out what did that guy do wrong? That his life is messed up. Because the key to the prosperity message is faith and stop sinning. You can have whatever you can believe. And if it's going bad, it's because you're not obeying God. And that's the two explanations that you come in contact with the prosperity gospel. But, you know, Job was a pretty good guy with a pretty awesome resume. Uh, I don't, I don't foresee God speaking of me the way he spoke of Job. Pointing out of all the human beings on planet Earth to Satan, have you observed my servant Job? This righteous man who walked with integrity with God, and yet the wheels are about to come off of his life, and suffering and affliction is going to haunt him in horrible ways. And his friends are going to come along and say, what did you do wrong, Job? Because this wouldn't be happening to you if this wasn't your fault. Well, we get introduced to a God who works in these moments, and, and he brings things into our lives that don't always feel positive and encouraging. And, and we're told something here. Look in verse 19, right? This little section begins in verse 13, then it concludes in verse 19, and then it translates into the next chapter in chapter 5 where I want to go. Just a second. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer 
according to God's will, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will. Do, do I have a category that suffering, setback, delay, hardship, challenging moments to believe God could be part of God's plan for me. It's not a warning light on the dashboard that you have steered off course. It is something God is willing for my life for strategic reasons that he finds valuable. And what do I do in those moments of suffering? Well, I'm tempted to do a lot of things, but this one verse just says, how about entrusting your soul? Your soul beat up, full of fear, angry, tempted. How about entrusting your soul to a faithful creator? I love the fact that in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those two words are back to back. Faithful creator. Of all the things God could have been called in this moment, he's called the creator. In other words, he's the one who creates things. He's the originator. So you're staring at your life and you're wondering, how did this happen? Well, because this person did this in my life. That's why it happened. Or because I did this. I was stupid and I did this. But there's a faithful creator who is creating in the world that you and I are walking in. And he is faithful to something. He's faithful to his purpose. He's faithful to us as well. All right, so that's what 1 Peter is about. It is about. It is an entire book, if you will, about that, how to suffer according to God's will and to turn to this faithful creator and entrust our souls to him. So from beginning of 1 Peter to the end of 1 Peter, that's where this book is going. Well, so let me tell you the tale of how we land here this morning in 1 Peter. So Wednesday morning... Um, after meeting with you guys last week, Wednesday morning, I'd set some time aside just to pray and just ask the Lord, Lord, what, what does Christ Community Church need to hear from you? Right? Big book. I could have popped open Leviticus and said, hey, we're going to be in Leviticus for a while. How's that? Um, <laughs> but I'm just asking, Lord, where, you know, where, what's, what's the church needing to hear right now? Um, and, and that's you know, what I'm used to doing in my own church, just trying to take the temperature. What's God trying to say to us as a local church? And what, what books would, would we study through together? And so the Lord just drew me. I spent a good bit of time Wednesday morning just, just being with him in First Peter, and particularly in the end of First Peter, and meditating on some things there. Later that day, I had a meeting with, with Jordan uh, on Wednesday. And so we just started talking a little bit, talking a little bit about the church and what's going on in it and the pulpit as well. He brings up, he doesn't know anything about my prayer time on Wednesday morning. He brings up, hey, the Lord's just kind of led me to First Peter. And just highlights just a sense of a burden that he has for that. And then I get a, an email the next day from LeVon saying, hey, you know, the advisory team, we were talking a little bit about, you know, the pulpit, what's coming up. What about First Peter? <laughs> all right, so I think we're going to be in First Peter. For, you know, I'm slow, but I'm not that slow, all right? <laughs> so here, here's, where, here's where this starts, right? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that it comes upon you to test you test you. Fiery trials that come by God's creative design to test you. Now, in this context, there's a bunch of little contexts of what that you is, right? Uh, there's stuff you're going through personally right now in your life that meet this description that are by God's creative design to test you. There are things you're going through together as a church that are by God's creative design to test you, Right? Who are you going to be when you come out the other side of this thing? That's true where you're at personally. 
That's true where you are corporately as well. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to jump us into some of the strategy here, and I'm going to start towards the back end of 1 Peter, and then but you're going to have other guys in the pulpit over the coming weeks. Some of your advisory guys are going to be in that uh, in the pulpit, and some couple of guys from Lakeview are going to come over here and, and be with you as well. But we're all going to try and, and stay within 1 Peter's emphasis here of, of helping us learn to entrust our souls to a faithful creator as we walk through fiery trials. So here's where I'm going to start today. I'm going to start in 1 Peter chapter 5 in verse 1, because that's the next verse after that summary verse in verse 19. After we're told to entrust our souls to a faithful God while doing good, here's the next thought. So, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself, what's he going to do? Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so a couple of things that just make this verse scream out at me, especially in light of a passage that just said, hey, you're going to go through fiery trials. Don't be surprised. Entrust your soul to God. Uh, I love the fact that this is the, this is the beginning place for Peter to, what's it look like to entrust your souls? How do you go about doing that? I love the fact that he maximizes something that our culture has been minimizing for decades. His starting place is the church. The first thing he brings up, when you go to entrust your soul, the context that he immediately runs to is shepherds and flocks. But what I, and I pay attention to this, obviously, because I, I serve as a pastor and I serve other churches in, in helping them. Uh, in the last 10 to 20 years, that's not the emphasis, even in the church. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis in the church for the last 10 to 20 years is very much shaped by the culture, more so than the Bible. And it's more about individuality and family. And I know family is one of our values, so this one sneaks up on us because we like that one, don't we? Well, yes, we do. We like a lot of things. 
But that doesn't mean we keep them in the proper order. It doesn't mean we're managing them well. Trevin, interesting, Trevin Wax is a writer for the Gospel Coalition. He wrote this just last week. He says, you can hear the angst in the voices of many pastors. I don't know what post-COVID church attendance looks like yet. We thought the worst of the pandemic was over. But then the Delta variant threw a wrench into even the best-made plans for a fallen for a, for a fall return to regular church attendance. When I hear him say that, I'm the, yeah, I'm, I'm one of the voices you're complaining about. The angst. We had waited and waited and waited to go back to one service on the South Shore. It's like, oh, finally, this thing's simmering down. Let's go back to one service. We'll just pile everybody together. It'll be fine. And the Delta variant shows up right when we're doing that. So um, I'm hating this whole COVID experience. He says, some church leaders worry about long-time faithful churchgoers who now attend sporadically if they've not checked out altogether. If we blame the decline in church attendance only on COVID, we fail to consider the cultural conditions that were already in place before the pandemic. An outlook on religious faith that, listen, shifts the center of spiritual gravity to the individual and the family, leaving church as something optional. That's not a COVID issue. That's for the last decade I've been watching that happen. I could pull up a number of specialists who study the church. Tom Rayner, in particular, who studies for the Baptist world, the trends and the activity, what's going on in the church. And he observed something about eight years ago. He said, what you're going to notice as a pastor is that your church, in large part, isn't shrinking, but your attendance is. And this is how he explained it. He said, because the people who used to attend your church four out of four Sundays in a month, they now attend three out of four Sundays. The ones who attended three out of four Sundays in a month, they now attend two. And the one who used to attend two, he now attends one. So every time you gather, there are less of your people in any particular meeting that you're having. And that's observable. That's observable for us as a church. It's observable in every church that I relate to these days. I had a good friend of mine who pastors a church, probably about your size, uh, who a few years ago decided he wanted to just observe how well his church was being attended. So he and the elders would take attendance every week, and they tracked it for a whole year. And then at the end of the year, they met with the people in the church, and they would open with this question. How many times do you think you missed church last year? And typically, very self-flattering. It's like, oh, I don't know, four times, maybe five. Um, His average was like quadruple their estimate. The person who said four had missed like 16 times. But you know, life travels so fast, doesn't it? It just feels like I was in church yesterday, every week. And I may not have been here for two or three weeks. And so so I say that just for us to be aware when there is this shift in emphasis and it's, it's a shift into some decent things, right? You live an individual life as well as a corporate life. So God's not against you individually. This is not like you should never have any personal interests. You should never pursue anything personally. God is for your family as well. But I will say this as a pastor, I can get away with this, but I'm a dad and I have seven children. So I'm big on family too. Um, the Bible says more about the church than it does about the family. Just letting that sink in for a second. Because some people don't know that that's true. Family's a big deal. 
The Bible speaks to individuals. That's a big deal. But, you know, the Bible addresses corporate settings more, right? The nation of Israel, the church in the New Testament, right? So we live in a culture that's emphasizing individuality. And then, you know, a big deal for me as an individual is my individual peeps, I mean, my family. So I'm going to make room for that at an, at an increasing level. And that's what we've been doing for decades now. And then the church becomes this optional element. But that's not where Peter goes, is it? When Peter says, you're going to go through fiery trials. Your life is going to get turned upside down. You are going to experiencing suffering. He makes us run to flocks and shepherds. That's the first thing he brings up. Not because he's against individuality or against family, but because God has designed grace to show up in our lives in particular ways. And it's to show up in shepherds and flocks. The way we do this together. The way we walk this out together. And this is a huge personal identity issue too. If you go back up in 1 Peter, maybe one of the other guys will preach through these verses. There is an identity adjustment introduced to Christians in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's a plural you there. So you as an individual, you are part of this bigger scene. Why? To show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So individually, yeah, I've got, I live at a particular address. I have a particular family. I do a particular job. Individually, I've got that. But I have a corporate identity as well that God intends to show up in my life. And so there's grace in this land of shepherds and flocks that we are a part of. So let me just take those two things apart today, shepherds and flocks, and give you a few thoughts. And I'm going to try and make this particularly relevant to where you guys are and what you're navigating right now. So here's the reality. In local churches, in flocks, there are something called shepherds. They're identified as elders here. They are identified among the flock. They're not left to guesswork. You don't have to wonder who they are. Are they the guy who speaks the most? Are they the guy who's the loudest? Are they the guy who tells the best jokes? Are they the guy who can open up more of the Bible than somebody else? It, it, that's not how they're decided upon. They are appointed in a particular way. They are not the voice of democracy. They are not the voice of mobs. They are not the voice of protesters. Or they are not a trending cause. Now listen, it's become very, very hard to do corporate anything today because there are noisy causes within the room of everything that you do. It's one of the reasons why the church feels so divided right now after the polarized year that we had politically. That's not what elders are. Elders are not called. I'm, I'm not called as an elder to follow a trend. I'm not called to take a poll and follow the democratic view of the church. We're not governed by democracy. We're governed by God who's established an order and who ordains that elders would lead churches. So when, when Peter encourages us, hey, in your fiery trial moment, run toward these things. And, and, and I realize I'm standing up here today telling you to run toward something that the world is currently telling you to run away from. Because the world is telling you don't trust anybody. Suspect everything and everybody who's got any role in any decision because they can turn it for their own good, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Before I even go any farther, can I just acknowledge that that's still true in the New Testament? These shepherds and these flocks that, that, that this church is being encouraged to run toward, they could be corrupted as well. They could do anything that anybody could do today. 
And yet God is still ordaining for them to be run to. So you don't get very far in this passage before flocks get introduced to two huge things. Humility and submission is all in this passage. Two things that are kind of hard for us to do in our individuality, but yet nonetheless, that's what God calls us to do. Uh, In your setting right now, and I do want to make this very relevant to you. In your setting, you have a local elder and two provisional elders, myself and Pete. And you have a local elder who is for a season stepping back from his responsibilities to focus on some other things. So, all right, so who plays this role now of shepherding? Well, the provisional elders do. And then what I have loved about just how carefully and wisely Sovereign Grace has thought through what we call a book of church order. It's a, it's a means of doing church life together. And it's been examined by every elder in Sovereign Grace before it was officially adopted as our common practice. So local churches exist this way. Authority sits in the local eldership in a Sovereign Grace church. But local elderships welcome the influence, not the authority. I, I don't, I'm a provisional elder in your church, so I do have authority in your church. But as a regional leader in other churches, I don't have any authority. I can come in and help the church. I can share some things. I can meet with the leaders. But I don't have any decision-making power in, in a local church. But those guys welcome me to be a part of that. And we, as local churches, welcome the entire region of elders. We call it a regional assembly of elders. We welcome them to influence our local churches. So, so Jeff's not here on an island with nobody influencing him. Local churches welcome what is encouraged here. We run towards one another's authority as well and not away from it. Second quick thought. There is God-ordained human agency tucked into the church. Right? Make no mistake. Jesus said that the, the church was his and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And then he turned around and empowered human agency to lead it. And, and he picked some guys that were, you know, probably would not have made our draft pick. Our draft board would not have included some of the guys that were in the first 12 that he hung out with for obvious reasons when you hear their story. But this human agency is God entrusting really big and really important stuff to human beings. Things like the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Go into all the world. Jesus has come. He has died in our place. He has rec- he's got a message of reconciliation for the whole world to hear. He doesn't say, look, you know what? I'm tempted to give this to you guys, but you'd screw it up in a heartbeat. I got this one. This is too important. I'll make sure it goes to the ends of the earth. I don't want you guys involved in this. How many of you guys know that not everybody even goes on the going of the Great Commission? Do you recognize the church is full of people who are not quite all the way in? And yet they've still been entrusted with go and make disciples of all nations. When you look at the appointing of elders, right? if you visit the Apostle Paul on his first missionary journey, he's going to go from town to town, town to town, and people are going to get saved and churches are going to get created in those settings. And then he and Barnabas are going to go back in those towns Maybe a year has passed, and he's going to go back into those towns, and he's going to appoint elders. So we get a little bit of a clue as to where these elders come from. Well, they came from other elders in the body of Christ who were leading churches who were going to recognize these elders. But before you go glamorizing that too bad, can you just deal with the reality of what I just described to you? 
the Apostle Paul spends a short amount of time in a local church preaching the gospel. People get saved. A church gets established. He comes back and he visits. And he says, you and you are going to serve as elders in the church. Elders that people are going to submit their lives to. Elders that people are going to follow. Can I just ask you the obvious question in the room right now? How well did Paul know these guys? I mean, don't over-glamorize this and make it like, well, he knew them like you and Jeff know each other. No, he did not. It would have been impossible. And yet the Bible doesn't take the edge off of the call to submit to the elders in a local church. See, now I get it. As soon as an elder gets a blemish on him, we all kind of get this, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I could do that. Well, make sure you're reading your New Testament like it's a real book with real people in it. These guys weren't exactly walking on water without any blemishes or flaws in their lives. Like, welcome to your marriage. Right Before you, feel, you hold the, the church to some level of sanctification, that, what about in our own homes? Right? Wives, submit to your husbands. Wow. Why? Because he's got A game all the time? Because he is super godly in every category? No, he's not, is he? And, and, and what's being entrusted to your marriage? Just you two getting along, having a family, living a nice life? Well, according to Paul, your marriage is a living representation of Christ and his bride in Ephesians chapter 5. You've been entrusted with something, the imaging of God into this world through your marriage. Human agency filled with faults and problems and hours and hours of marriage counseling and still you're struggling. And I am too. And yet God's entrusted this to us. Listen, all human agency is fallen human agency. Right? I put this in your outline. From the Great Commission to home leadership, God has purposed to accomplish his glorious task through vessels of clay that crack and leak and fail. That's always been from the beginning. And then we get, so do not be surprised at the fiery trials that come among you. Right? You guys as a church are, are passing through something that you could describe as a fiery trial. But I'm pretty sure if I, if I met with you couples for a little while, you could tell me about real fiery trials. Because a little closer to home, that's where the real heat is and the real challenge is. Because God has entrusted precious things to human agency, and human agency has cracks in a fallen world. Right? Remember Paul Tripp's thought? Life in this fallen world is hard, so therefore friendships become hard, and marriage becomes hard, and raising children becomes hard, and being a church becomes hard. So when you encounter hard, don't act as though this can't be the will of God. Uh, yeah, there are lots of things that are the will of God that are also hard. Remember, Jesus is going to pick some guys to be on his team that are going to have cracks in them. Peter doesn't get far out of the gate before he even denies he even knows Jesus. He's the lead guy. He seems to be the guy who's going to help all the rest of the apostles play their role. And the first thing he does, I don't even know the guy. Wow, that's a great start. What's the first thing Jesus have to, has to do after he sits down and meets with Peter? Restore him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Okay, Lord, you've already asked me this question. I'm going to ask it to you again. Peter, do you love me? 
know, it's interesting, if you keep reading in 1 Peter, towards the end of 1 Peter 5, there's a, there's a guy that Peter reaches out to named Mark. That he, that he, he wants Mark to come to him. Do you guys know who Mark is? He's John Mark. He's John Mark from Acts chapter 14 and 15. He's John Mark who was the centerpiece for why Paul and Barnabas parted ways because Paul refused to work with John Mark anymore. Why? Because John Mark chickened out and quit and left the ministry while they were on their first missionary journey together. And Paul said, I ain't taking that guy no more. And Barnabas said, wait, dude, what's, what's wrong with you? Of course we should take him. No, we should not. And those two felt so strongly about it that they parted ways and they no longer ministered together. That's a major issue in the New Testament. One of them had the faith for John Mark to continue and the other one did not. Can you see human agency in the church? Can you recognize that godly leaders don't always agree with each other? Now later on, John Mark seems to have been restored by God because that's what God does, right? A couple of realities on elders in the life experience uh, of real elders in real settings. Uh, how many of you guys know that many Corinthians, church that Paul pastored, rejected Paul's ministry? How many of you know that? One of the most hostile books in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians. It's Paul defending himself up one side and down another. Paul fell short. He didn't meet their expectations. He wasn't as good of a speaker as some of the super apostles were. He didn't have the loyalty of everybody. They would have rather Apollos come to them rather than Paul coming to them. So their allegiances were split. And some of them didn't even claim to follow anybody. We just follow Jesus. Hallelujah. Right, so that's how respected Paul's ministry was in Corinth. Timothy was a prolific read, uh, leader that is still in the New Testament that we talk about. But he had problems. Read why Paul had to say, not just what Paul said, but Paul, why did you have to say some of the things to Timothy that you did? Hey, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on your youthfulness. Why did he have to say that? Because they were looking down on his youthfulness. He showed up in the church to lead. He's God's man, but uh, what does he know? How old is this guy anyway? Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Why do you have to tell Timothy that? Because he's afraid. Because he's been eaten for lunch in enough churches to know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Timothy, God's given you something, man. You need to exercise it. You need to hone the gift that you have. Preach the word. Be ready, Timothy, in season and out of season. Why you got to tell Timothy that? Because what he was doing was frightening and hard. Because people didn't always receive him. See, when, as soon as you throw human agency into the mix, don't think like, oh, well, God said submit to elders. Uh, can I just tell you you're going to have a problem doing that? From the New Testament to today. That's going to be a problem for a variety of reasons. There's a reason why the Bible has to say, honor those who labor among you as elders. Why does it have to tell you that? Because we're tempted not to do it. And that's just a fact. Put real people in the churches in the first century. Paul just went in and appointed elders. None of them had been to seminary. They didn't own a Bible concordance. They didn't own a Bible. They had no library of Paul's greatest teachings. They couldn't download a message. They couldn't listen to a podcast this week. Can you imagine how many stupid things these elders said from a pulpit? I mean, really. I mean, they got saved last year, and now they're the elders. So before we think, oh, these guys were like J.I. Packer on steroids, uh, 
They were like people who sit in the rows with you right now, who God just raised up. And then he's turning around and telling you, submit to them. They probably weren't good speakers, godly men, seeking God, walking with God as best they knew how. But, not, I mean, Paul got criticized because he wasn't a good speaker. It's like the dude can write a mean letter, but when he shows up, I don't know, his, his whiny voice kind of gets to me. You know, that's what they were saying about Paul. And so can you imagine today, you got, you got elders, so they're not Hall of Fame elders. They don't, they're not going to get published somewhere. They're not going to be followed by a national audience, but they're New Testament elders. Which, which, by the way, not all the guys who did reach that kind of success did well all the time either. Ever heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon? Yeah, we still quote Spurgeon. I probably don't go a month without quoting Charles Spurgeon at some point. But pastor in the late 1800s in, in London, England. Uh, can I tell you he had a hard time being a pastor? Did you know he suffered from depression throughout most of his life? And towards the end, extremely difficult times of walking through depression. Controversies in the, in the world of, of Christian politics that were taking place in his day. So are we surprised today when we hear the number of burned out pastors and pastors that are struggling? And kind of, no, no, we kind of, it's in the Bible. It's part of what makes flocks and shepherds a precious relationship with each other. Because we're walking this out with human agency on both sides. So one thing, I know I, I can't get away from this encouragement to me as a pastor, Jeff, to you as a pastor, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You know, no matter how hard this job gets, no matter how discouraging it can become, no matter how challenging it can be, that word still stands for us. That's what we move towards. We are moving towards something that we are eager to do, we are compelled to do, and we do it out of a heart that's right and not a heart that's twisted. All right, let me make a couple of comments to the flocks, and then we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. So we move the first few verses of chapter 5, instruction that elders exist, leaders are in the midst of a flock, we should move toward them. And then we hear this word, verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right, I wrote this thought out in your outline. You can give it some thought yourself. Peter's idea, right? This is the next thing he says after entrust your souls. Peter's idea of entrusting our souls involves humility and submitting ourselves to others. Right? Remember, this is a means of grace for our moments of fiery trials that test us. If we don't embrace this means of grace, then you're into a fiery trial without gracious aid. There's gracious aid here when we submit to leaders who can influence us and give them permission to do that with all their flaws and weaknesses, and we clothe ourselves with humility. And I love the fact that he uses that phrase, clothe yourselves, right? What's the first thing you do before you get up and walk around? Hopefully, uh, you put on some clothes, right? You wake up and you start the day, and the first thing you do is you 
clothe yourself. This is a first-order, primary thing that we're called to do. Right? And this would be helpful. This would be a helpful awareness for us as modern people. Right? Put this in your outline. Humility postures me to need and to receive from others who are not like me. If I, I, how aware am I of the need that I have? Need, I, I, I have needs that I need to receive from others. Where does that come from? Well, it, it just is a product of humility. It's when humility is living in me, when it's clothed in me, I, I become aware I ain't got it all. And I'm going to need something that other people have in my life. And God's designed it that way. And here's the weird world that you and I live in. If you and I come into the idea that we need something, we just ask Siri. Right? Or we ask Google. Let me just tell you the, the, the problem with doing that. See, Siri and Google, I don't know if you know this or not, but they're not real people, uh, first off. Um, the problem with doing that is I, I don't truly have to interact or make myself available to any of those ideas. I mean, when you do a Google search, do you feel bound by what something says? Or do you shop for something you like? Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that was the fourth one. What'd you think about the first two? No, they were wrong. But when God sticks you in a flock, and he puts you with real human beings, and, and your life is readable, and you can, you can interact with one another in these categories... Now you're hearing something that you just kind of can't Google past and blow off. Now it's a real human being that knows something about you, and you know something about them. And there's a different kind of interaction in that moment. So listen, the Google world, but quite honestly, this is what folks are doing, right? If I, if I need an answer, I'll go to Google. But if I, I'm called to go to people at some level. Right? I'm called to interact with human beings in this. And, I, and I'm called to be aware of that by being humble. I have an accurate self-awareness, right? I put, wrote this in your outline. Good thought to meditate on here. Everybody will thank you in your life if you'll just think through these thoughts. All right, so let humility be your default setting. Be in touch with your own limitations, your own limitations, right? You have expectations for others, but quite often those expectations ignore my own limitations. I expect things from you that I don't expect from me. I won't cut you any slack. I'll cut me lots of slack. I mean, be aware of your own limitations. Be in touch with your personal bent. You are a certain way. Did you know that about yourself? That's one of the hardest things to travel through life and not know. You are a certain way. You have a certain style about you. You have a certain tendency about you. You have certain personality. There are people in the room here who are much more aggressive and ambitious, and you're going to go after it and get it. And then there's others in the room who are more timid and shy and removed, and security is the number one thing that you want. So when you go to interpret life, the two of you will go to war instantly because one of you by nature is, is more careful, more seeking for security. That feels risky. I don't know. Questions, cautions. The other one is throw care to the wind. Let's do this thing. Look, come on. What's wrong with you? Right? Do you recognize neither one of those is the model person in the Bible? There's faith in the Bible and there's wisdom in the Bible. Wisdom will put restraints on things and faith will go after stuff. But neither one of those are like, okay, be one or the other. 
here. But are you aware that you are one or the other in a bunch of categories like that? And when you go to do life together, husbands and wives, in a family, dealing with your children, I can't tell you how many, how many parents and children develop broken relationships because they fail to recognize I am trying to force you to be like me. I'm not trying to force you to be righteous or who God made you to be. I'm trying to force you to be like me. And then when I can't get that to happen, I'm frustrated and you're wrong. Uh, can I just tell you, whatever you put on when you got up in the morning, it wasn't humility. Humility doesn't produce that kind of an attitude. So be careful that we waken our lives in humility. Now let me particularly bring this to you guys locally here. Moments of trials need to be moments where humility is prioritized. Moments of trials, moments of conflict need to be moments where humility is prioritized. Not emotion, not prioritizing emotion. I'm going to respond. I'm going to feel something. Not outrage. Can I just tell you, everybody's about two seconds from outrage, right? Have you done road rage lately? I mean, it's outrage instantly. Not gossip. Not tribalism. Do you know we're back to tribalism in massive ways, social media? It's like we, we look for people who are in our camp. And, and you fish for them by saying things with a certain edge to them. And then you find out. And half of your friends don't respond. They're not in your tribe. But the ones who do, and they're like, yes, exactly off with their heads. That's a response of tribalism. Okay, that's not humility. Be careful how we're doing this. All right, let me make this statement, and I'm going to give you some good examples from your own world here, even in the past couple of weeks. All right, Christian individuals, as well as leaders, don't know all there is to know. Every Christian individual and every person who functions in any aspect of leadership, we do not know all there is to know. Only God does. And God's okay with us operating with our limited knowledge. He releases us into roles with limited knowledge. But we need to know that about each other, right? So you guys are walking through a process right now as a church. You're entrusting your leaders to walk with this process. Can I just tell you right up front, the leaders don't know all there is to know. All right, so I've been pastoring for however many years, almost 30 years. Um... I'm seeking to serve you guys. Uh, Pete's seeking to serve you guys. I've reached out to a fellow named John Payne, who's in Sovereign Grace, who, who gives oversight. He's one of the leadership team members who gives oversight to church care. That's his particular area of responsibility. I don't know everything there is to know. Pete doesn't know everything there is to know. John doesn't know everything there is to know. Jeff's going to meet with some counselors, some guys who have walked through some of the struggles and difficulties of pastoring. They don't know everything there is to know. I've met with your advisory team. They don't know everything there is to know. Right? We all walk in settings where our, our knowledge is limited, right? We have already, already had discussions where one person's perspective was different than someone else's. Does, would that surprise you if I told you that? Right? Would it surprise you that when I, I picked the phone up to talk to the, the guy who gives oversight to me as a regional leader, to submit some of my thoughts and my ideas about how to help you guys as a church and how to help Jeff and Kathy in this hour. Uh, first phone call I had with him, he and I did not agree fully on everything. But since I picked the phone up in the posture of, I don't know everything, 
it's very easy for me to listen to him. And when he shares his perspective, he's humble enough to let me disagree with him on some things. So we move through a couple-hour phone call, agreeing many categories and disagreeing with some. Can I tell you that when we met with your advisory team, uh, we didn't all agree with each other on what exactly should we do right now? And not because somebody was had this crazy, unbiblical idea, but because the Bible doesn't spell out the details of some of these things. And in all humility, you have an opinion, and I have an opinion. And we seek wisdom as best we can. So let me just be totally upfront with you. Um, what exactly should Jeff have shared last week? As he stood up in front of you and confessed his struggles and his sin. What should he have shared? There are some people in our room who feel like, I'm not sure he should have shared anything. And there are some people like, I think he should have said more. Uh, well, before you say anything, clothe yourselves with humility and recognize the Bible doesn't tell you what to say when you confess. It doesn't always tell you that you're required to confess to others. That's something Jeff agreed to. That's something that we thought was wise. But there's no biblical mandate that he had to do that. And then how much to say? And, and what should this look like moving forward? How long should it take? Right, we've proposed two or three months to walk through a season of evaluation and assessment and to help serve Jeff. Is that too long? I've already heard from some people who've said it's too long. Is that not long enough? I've heard from some who've said it's not long enough. But, you know, if we put on our clothing in the morning, we put on our clothing in humility, and we recognize we don't know everything. I don't know exactly all that God would do, and I don't know exactly how long God would take. And then we trust and hope this God who does restoration is working in Jeff's life, and there is a, a bearing of fruit in keeping with repentance. What kind of fruit? How much fruit? How long should we take with that fruit? Should it be buckets of fruit? A truckload? And what categories exactly is the fruit supposed to show up in? Do you understand there aren't absolutes in these categories, but we're called to walk together. So we don't run from flocks and we don't run from elders. And if you have a conversation with me in this category, any of you who know me, I, I probably don't brush my teeth without a strategy. So I probably can answer everything you ask me. And quite honestly, my wife would be the first one to amen me, but I'd appreciate it if you wouldn't. Um, <laughs> that the dude will explain his reasoning to you to death. Um, and, and, and part of me is because I'm, I'm an overly careful person. So I'm, I'm trying to make sure anything that I'm doing, I can answer to the scriptures and explain why I'm doing it. That should make you avail, mean available to you as an elder to interact with you about a situation, but that will not guarantee you will like my answers. Now, if I'm promoting to you a different Jesus than the one that's in the scriptures, you have a major problem. But if I'm saying, how about this long? And you're saying, how about this long? Do you understand? Neither one of us have a Bible passage for that. So we clothe ourselves in humility. We listen to one another carefully. We try and see if God's bringing wisdom. And then a group of individuals make as wise a decision as possible. And God uses human agency to accomplish the task that he is ultimately doing in our midst and in our lives. Now listen, this travels into husbands and wives. This travels into the way we interact with one another. 
right? We, we ought not to, this is not humility, when I hear you say something that I don't necessarily agree with, since I can't necessarily take your principles apart, I'm going to now attack you. Husbands and wives, have you ever used this phrase? Well, that's great, because you always, ah, well, you were raised by, mm, 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 mm. See, so it's no longer about the issue we're discussing. It's now I've moved it to attack your character. But this is not humility. And in conflicted times, we need to clothe ourselves in humility. Right? This is going to be the reality for you. And, and, and I'm intentionally starting where Peter is starting. Peter started with fiery trials where we entrust our souls to God and we do it as shepherds and flocks together. But please don't buy into some idea that, all the shepherds do this exactly the way we hoped that they would. And all the flock responds exactly the way we hoped they would. That's not the New Testament. These are real people wrestling through real issues in their lives. And God didn't call you to something. Remember when you got married? You're not married to your church, but you are committed to it in a certain way. So when you got married, it was, you know, you had vows in there for, for better or for worse for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. It, it was you signing on for something that could, could be easy or could be hard. But it doesn't matter because I'm going to be the same person. I'm committed to something, whether it's easy or whether it's hard. Right? There's a similar place for you to be a part of a flock that, that feels like that. Whether it's easy or whether it's hard, we're called to flocks and we're called to shepherds. And that's a means of God leading us through these seasons. All right, one last thing, and then we're going to take communion together. I can't get away from this last admonition. Here's the confidence and hope we have in verse 10. Where's this going? Verse 10. It says, after you have suffered a little while. So there's going to be suffering. And thank God there's a time boundary attached to it. Lord, thank you for that. The God of all grace. Who's the actor in this moment? The God of all grace is now who we're staring at who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, he will do this, himself. He will be the mover and shaker here. What's he going to do? He is going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. All right, so when you navigate fiery trials, suffering, testings, and difficulties, God is up to something. This is where God's headed. If you want to know what direction God's pointing in, God is pointing in the direction of restoring, confirming, strengthening, and establishing you. This is where the God of glory wants to take his people. I'm so grateful that in all the storylines of my life, whether it's parenting or marriage or pastoring, that this God is seeking in my seasons, to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. That's the faithful creator whom I am entrusting my soul to, and it is yours as well. So I want to give you an exercise that you guys would do this personally. On the last page of your notes, and since we're going to do communion today, I'm not going to lead us through this. I just want you to, to sit with God, and I want you to answer these questions, you and him. Question. Am I entrusting my soul to God? But this, this is an act of our will. This is an act of faith that we do. So it's not done for us. It's not accidental. You won't accidentally discover that, oh, all that time I was. No, no. 
uh, you intentionally entrust our souls to God. Am I doing that by submitting to and looking to elders? Am I doing that by prioritizing humility as my first and foremost governing attitude? Putting clothing on first. And do I have faith for where the faithful creator is taking me? Not there yet. Rejoicing and gladness are coming, but they're not exactly here sometimes. But do I trust this faithful creator? All right, well, today we have an opportunity to to pick this up a little bit in the context of celebrating communion together. And, and I think a wonderfully appropriate moment for us to celebrate communion. And you guys know this, but perhaps we can listen for what communion is through a little different set of ears this morning. Communion is exactly that. It is many sharing in something together. Right? So, it, so this is a flock dynamic. Right? We are the flock of God. We share a community life together. And we are here under the grace of God. So that would lead us next to humility. So this flock and this humility, it's in the meal that we're about to partake of. 